in the toy industry, the phrase is, there's probably never going to be another Beanie Babies because it was so big. Uh, every every couple of years, there'll be an article about like, oh, what are your Beanie Babies worth now? And the article is always saying like, nothing. Welcome to Rework, a show about the better way to work and run your business. I'm Sean Hildner. And I'm Waylon Wong. We'd like to think that we can predict the future. We stress over writing the perfect business plans. We hire financial planners. We buy a bunch of tiny plush animals, hoping they'll send our kids to college. But no matter how carefully we plan, we simply can't foresee everything that may happen. Let's call planning what it really is, guessing. It might be an educated guess, but maybe there's too much emphasis on having the perfect plan. Being beholden to a long-term plan leaves no room for improvising or reacting to reality. Sometimes you just have to say, let's throw out the plan and go in a new direction. On today's episode, we have the story of a man whose plans to start his own investment firm went in a totally unexpected direction. We'll also hear Basecamp's CEO, Jason Freed, talk about how he approaches work in six-week increments and what happens when you get to the end of that cycle without shipping anything. And finally, we'll pick up that Beanie Baby conversation you heard at the beginning and learn how an independent toy store plans for the holiday season. My name is Mark Michaels, and I'm the CEO and chairman of United Record Pressing. I grew up in South Bend, Indiana in the 70s, and I have a mother that loves music. And so from an early age, we'd talk about Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf and Sun Seals. And she'd take me to bars when I was 14 and say, you need to see this guy play. And I just fell in love with it. It just music just spoke to me. And you know, music spoke to a lot of people in the 70s, but for me, I just it seemed to really take me to a different level. I just, I loved it. Mark loved music, but didn't pursue it as a career. He went to business school and then joined McKinsey as a management consultant. After that, he worked for a couple of big private equity firms in New York and Chicago. In very simplistic terms, private equity firms buy businesses, try to increase their value, and then sell them, either to another company or on the stock market. After more than a decade doing these deals, Mark started his own private equity firm and set out to find his first investment. That's when he came across United Record Pressing in Nashville, Tennessee, a company that had been around since 1949. They had manufactured most of the records for Motown in the 60s and the 70s. They pressed the, the first Beatles single in America. Above the plant, there's this apartment that was built you know, by the owners of United back in the 60s, and it was built specifically for the Motown artists and executives so that they would have a place to stay when they came to Nashville to see their records made and to celebrate the, the release of the record because of the segregated South. A lot of the African-American artists couldn't get hotel rooms in, in Nashville, so they would stay at United Record Pressing. You look at this apartment, there's a you know, bedroom, a bathroom, a kitchen, a, kind of this back party room, and then a large you know, record release room, and turntables and couches, and you know this sort of naugahyde covered furniture, and, and brown paneling, and nicotine stains on the ceiling, and it's all intact, and it's exactly, it was when I first saw it in, in 2007, and it still is today, and it's the most beautiful space in the world, with a spectacular history. You know, I looked at it, and you kind of said, you know, kind of like everybody, vinyl records, they're still around, and, and you kind of you look at this, and you say, okay, well, they are still around. It's a small niche business, and the, the industry had consolidated dramatically. There were only a few uh, plants left making vinyl records, and fortunately, United Record Pressing was the largest, or, you know, if not, it was you know, one of the two largest. You needed to get yourself comfortable that 
hopefully it wasn't going to go completely away. And then if it's not, is there every reason to believe that this can be, you know, the last man standing or one of the last men standing in a way that would still generate kind of sufficient and interesting economics? And is there a management team there that, that you have confidence in that will kind of keep the wheels turning? But the whole time you kind of kept saying, well, these are records. This is pretty cool. <laughs> So Mark decided to make United Record Pressing his first investment. Now keep in mind, this was 10 years ago, before Record Store Day and the current resurgence in vinyl. But Mark felt good about the company. It had a reliable revenue stream. When I bought the business, the kind of the core of what the company did was, uh, and really what was was probably the, the core of vinyl consumption in 2006, 2007, it, w- it was 12-inch singles that were done for promotional purposes. So Jay-Z is going to re- release a new record and there's some single that's a really hot single. And so the, the label would uh, commission United Record Pressing to press 40, 50, 60, 80,000 copies of this 12-inch single, and there would be you know, a um, you know, regular version, a clean version, a dirty version, an extended dance version. They would give it away to clubs and radio stations and DJs around the world. And, and that drove a lot of the economics, the underlying economics of the business when we bought it. But you know what they say about the best laid plans. Shortly after the deal closed, they started to introduce products that would allow uh, the DJs to, to digitally spin and scratch and mix and do all the things that they used to do with two turntables. And the record companies, who were really kind of in a tough place uh, and, and looking to do things to strengthen their economics, kind of woke up one day and said, you know, giving away thousands of free records to DJs, you know, big, heavy, expensive vinyl records, uh, is probably not an economic activity. And so we ought to wind that down. And, and that was, you know, that was an important pillar of what United Record Pressing was at the time. And you kind of say, gee, did we just catch a falling knife? And losing that crucial revenue stream was just the beginning of Mark's problems. As that core you know, bedrock of our business started eroding, the prior CEO, who was the seller of the company, had stuck around. And, and he owned it before. He was the owner, yeah. He'd owned it for about 10 years. And he had some health issues, and his wife had some health issues, and, and clearly it wasn't a whole lot of fun running it, given what was going on. So one day I got a call, and, and he said, you know, I've got these health issues, mine and my wife's, and you're the chairman. You come down and run it. And I said, okay, well, we should talk about that. And he said, yeah, we should talk fast. He said, this was on a Wednesday. He said, why don't you come down tomorrow? I'll give you the keys. I'll, sh- I'll take you through my Rolodex. And uh, on Friday morning, we'll have a cookout, and we'll say goodbye, and Friday afternoon, it's yours. I uh, got on a plane and I got some keys and a Rolodex and a real quick education. We had a cookout and after lunch, I got my guys together and I said, okay, this is, this is what's new. This was my first deal. This was mine with my name on the door. And if my first deal flamed out in 18 months, there wasn't going to be a second deal. So I said, I'm going to do everything I can. So now Mark was the CEO of a struggling company, a company that was supposed to be the first in a long line of investments, and he had to find a way to save it. You know, after lunch on that first day, we got the team together, and I got an earful of, um, you know, we've got this quality issue on, you know, this record and this record and this record, and Universal wants to have a call with you, and Sony wants to have a call with you, and I go, oh my God, and, and, you know, then we kind of said, all right, after you know a day or two of, of phone calls and education, I got my operating guys together and said, 
take me through every step to how you make a vinyl record because we're going to reinvent this company. We're going to rebuild it. We're going to take it apart. We're going to strip it down and we're going to rebuild it and we're going to make great records. We, we started sourcing a higher quality vinyl compound. We invested in capital equipment and our electroplating operation and our shrink wrapping operation. Uh, we did little things like I just put brighter lights above the inspectors. Initially, I, um, you know, I did this out of necessity. And that, you know, that was a few years of really hard work and, and you know, a lot of sleepless nights and, and really uncertainty as to what the outcome was going to be. After you know, two or three years in the trenches of, of all that, you kind of say, I think I understand what needs to happen, you know, better than anybody and, and, you know, why not see if I can, you know, drive it to the finish line, you know, or or, drive it to something that's, you know, really exciting and promising. Then something almost miraculous happened. Vinyl came back. Record Store Day became a national event. By 2015, United Record Pressing had so much demand, it actually had to stop taking on new customers. Today, it's operating out of a new plant in Nashville with triple the capacity of its old one. Mark is still running the company, which remains the only business his private equity firm has ever invested in. Honestly, candidly, you know, it was records. And, and so it's like, okay, we, we, we've, we've got it in a place where it, it's stable. It's got a, a more than a fighting chance to really be something spectacular. And it's music. And so, you know, you kind of think back to, you know, those days of you know, your, your, your mother in South Bend, Indiana, taking you to see Muddy Waters. And it's like, this is what I'm meant to do. Mark thought he had it all figured out. He started a private equity firm and was going to invest in a bunch of businesses that would produce healthy returns. But he also had the wherewithal to know when to scrap that whole plan. Now he runs one of the oldest record pressers in America. Next, we're going to play a conversation I had with Jason Freed about how we, here at Basecamp, break up work into six-week cycles. And even back when we were a small web design firm called 37 Signals, there was very little formal planning. Are you comfy? Yeah, I'm fine. You look very tall. Well, it is the seat's a little high, but like, <laughs> cool. just because the mic was where it was, so I'm fine. Did you ever write a business plan for 37 Signals? No, I've never written a business plan. Like, I've been given them, and like, I, I, what do I do with this? <laughs> it's like 10 pages of stuff that doesn't matter. The thing I actually don't like, I really don't like, are, are business plan competitions. And they have um, business leaders or entrepreneurs or whatever come in and, and judge the, the business plans and then like give awards. Like, this is the best business plans. Like, this is all bullshit. All of it is 100% made up bullshit. It doesn't have to survive reality at all, not even for a second. I'm going to put together this plan. This is what's going to happen across my business. Here's how fast we're going to grow, and here's when we're going to hire, and here's where we're going to do this and do that. It's like, no, it's not. People like to plan because they feel like it gives them a certain level of confidence in what's going to happen in the future. And I, I just think the future is unknown and uncertain for a million different reasons. Just live with that and just go as you go. Planning itself is fine. It's just recognizing what it is is the is the key, which is it's a guess. Because a plan is like what you hope to happen, what you expect to happen. It's not what's going to happen. When you look out super far, let's even call it like even a year or even six months, I think is super far in terms of planning. But let's say a year, two years or three years or five years or whatever. You know, the further away you get, just the blurrier your vision is. You can't see that far, really. For example, we um, we basically plan out the next six weeks worth of work broadly, and then the specifics are filled in as we go. But then we, we do six weeks worth, worth of work. We take a couple weeks off, and then we do another six weeks worth of work. So we're every six weeks, we're reconsidering what we want to do next versus laying out an entire year's work ahead of time. 
basically the anatomy of six weeks is the first week, get to some rapid prototyping to make sure that this idea is even feasible in pixels, in code, in interface. So the first week is like a little bit experimental, but by the end of the first week, we should be like, okay, we're doing this. And then every week after that, we should be narrowing in, not widening out, and not adding in more things as we go. What, what were we doing before that? Back when, I don't know, uh, Basecamp 2, I think it was, or maybe before that, we didn't have any deadlines at all. It's just like, we'll build this thing until it's done or until we feel like it's good enough. Whatever it takes to get it done right is the amount of time it's going to take. But it turns out that um, you tend to just kind of linger on things that don't matter, and you might as well just perfect everything. And some people might say, well, that's what you should do, right? Perfect everything. I I don't think you should perfect everything. Anyway, so we kind of went from sort of no deadlines and no timeframes to then doing, I believe we did three-month, let's call them cycles, like three months worth of work at a time. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that when you give something three months, it takes three months. Like you always seem to get right to the end and you use all the time up and you sort of ship it right at the end. And I think it was Connor was one of our designers. I might be saying the wrong person. But I think it was Connor who's like, why don't we try six weeks? Like what, what is this magic about three months? You get roughly the same outcome in six weeks if you know you only have six weeks that you do if you have three months. Basically, you spend as much time as you have. And the nice thing about six weeks versus three months or having no deadlines at all is that when you have six weeks, like you, you can see the end and you make better decisions, I think, because you have to be sort of thinking more about scope and what's actually possible and what the, what's the important part here. What are the important things? And what are the, the less important things? What are the essentials and the non-essentials? When you have three months or no time frame, you don't really have to make as many decisions. You just kind of like keep punting on things. You have always have later in the, in the three months, but six weeks, you don't have any later. It's like basically now. It's almost always now. And I think that's a good thing. So it puts constraints on us and it forces us to make good decisions, kick things out that don't make sense, focus in on what does, and then do it again. We have more opportunities to make new choices and bring new ideas to the table every six weeks versus only a few times a year. What is the scope of one of the six-week cycles? This is not a product redesign. Is it a single feature? Scope is sort of the edges of, of something. Yeah, we wouldn't look at like redesigning Basecamp as a whole in six weeks. That's just an unrealistic thing. And how do we know that? We just know it through experience. Like it's just too big of a thing to do in six weeks. But when we are talking about uh, six-week cycles, we're typically talking about uh, new features in, in a product. Um, so, for example, this last six weeks, we redesigned the way search works in, in Basecamp. A fairly big project, but totally doable in six weeks. Now, of course, there's also a three-month version of that, but there's also a six-week version of that, right? And it turns out we did it in about four weeks. Can we talk about the client-side redesign? Yes. So we had this idea to redesign this part of the product called the the client-side, which is um, part of Basecamp where if you're working with a client, it's like a separate place where you only have client communications. And we had this idea to kind of do version two of it. So kind of rethink it and redo it. And um, that was a red flag right there, but we didn't pick up on it, which is whenever we say, like, let's do version two of something, that's too big. And it's like version two of something isn't an idea. But what ended up happening was we, we took on too much. It was so big that we didn't even know what we were looking at. We didn't get real or didn't get to prototype stage early enough. It took us like a few weeks. We didn't make tough calls early on enough. So part of, of being able to do work in six weeks is to make quick calls. We found ourselves at the end, almost at the end, about a week to go, realizing that we were still pushing uphill, like pushing a big, huge rock up. Like we were nowhere near the, the summit, basically. What ended up happening was we didn't ship, we didn't finish, and we weren't excited about it anymore. Um, we felt bad about what happened. We weren't 
enthusiastic about it. We still had a bunch of unknowns. And so we sort of decided to, to table it, shelve it, maybe come back to it next year, maybe not, maybe have a whole new idea next year. The reason we get into that bind is almost always the same reason, which is we, we bite off too much up front. We're not thinking specifically, we're thinking too broadly. We aren't realistic about what's possible. And we also don't have a really good idea of what we want to do yet. We're still kind of experimenting and thinking it through. Whenever we start a six-week cycle, we should come to it with a feature that's very clearly defined in terms of not all written out, but like we know what the purpose of this is and we know what we're doing with it. The other thing that's really nice about six weeks is you can just you can see the end of it. It's almost over even at the start. There's nothing more demoralizing than working on something that never ends is something you don't like to work on or you're not feeling good about, and you've got, I don't know, three months, six months, nine months, a year left, who knows? I've seen people get stuck in those situations. And I think we've had that in the past when we didn't have these six-week cycles where we could just keep be, you know, plugging, plugging along and pushing along and, and, and doing something. And there's an undercurrent of dissatisfaction with it, but there's no natural end to it. So it just kind of keeps going and the dissatisfaction builds because people start to imagine in their mind, like, I don't like this. I didn't like it last week. I didn't like it the week before. How much more is this? I don't even know how much more is going to be involved. Like, this sucks. I don't ever want to get to that point. So I like these 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 deadlines because they they at least at the very at the very least, they're moments of release and relief where you can be like, okay, we're done with that. We can move on to something else. Let's try being on a two-week podcast release schedule. Yeah, well, there it's you fantastic. go. Right. Like this episode, it's going to be horrible, oh, right? Oh, it's absolute horseshit. But at least <laughs> at least there's another one after this. So yeah. we're good. Yeah. You're actually just a very small part of this episode. So. Okay. So the horseshit part, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. absolutely. <laughs> well, we have less than six weeks until Christmas, so let's talk about toys. Toys, and especially collectible toys, are very susceptible to fads. And this brings us to Beanie Babies. Waylon, you seem like the kind of person that would know a little about Beanie Babies. Oh, I know about Beanie Babies. We have a five-year-old daughter who really likes stuffed animals. And when we go to yard sales, people are just giving away Beanie Babies. Like, these things used to sell for hundreds of dollars, and now they're just considered clutter. There's this little pocket guide that we also picked up for free at a yard sale. It's called the Beanie Baby Handbook 1998 Edition. that lists each Beanie Baby with their photo and it tells you their current value in 1998 and then their projected value in 2008. So my daughter sometimes sleeps with a little brown bear called Britannia Bear. And guess what it was supposed to be worth in 2008? What's that? $500. That is absolutely crazy. I know. My name is Ann Kinsley. I've been in the toy industry for 22 years, I think. Um, as a manufacturer, as a sales rep, and then now I own a retail store called Play in Chicago. And how long have you had your store? The store has been open seven years. This will be our eighth Christmas. Is that how you measure kind of the seasons? Yeah, is how many sure. Christmases you've been <laughs> yeah. in business? How many you've survived? <laughs> <laughs> and where were you during the Beanie Baby craze? The Beanie Baby phase was kind of right at the beginning of my career. And it escalated like through about a four-year period where at the beginning they were just these cute little things that were $5 and kids could spend their allowance on them. So it was perfect. And then it turned into this like craze where people were like chasing the UPS man and stealing boxes of Beanie Babies and people were, you know, in line for hours and all that kind of thing. So some stores were selling these things for crazy amounts of money. I think the really smart retailers knew that it wasn't going to last 
forever and they planned well and that was like extra for them and the icing on the cake for them as opposed to the cake and those that started running their business uh, in a way that uh, counted on that kind of income hurt afterwards and, and, and probably were in big trouble after that because with any trend it has to be the icing most businesses can't survive on trends alone especially with kids kids are fickle you know, one minute they'll only eat chicken nuggets, and then the next minute they suddenly can't stand chicken nuggets and don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> the businesses that used it as the icing did well. You know, I know people who bought second homes or, yeah, paid off their home. or Like, it was, it was a huge business at the time. Um, so when you opened up your store, what was the big thing for that holiday season? Gosh, I'm trying to remember. I don't remember there being a big thing the first couple of years. We've had a couple dips. The uh, rainbow looms were big for a while or um, rubber band bracelets. I definitely run my business uh, on the mainstay products. And we'll dip our toes into trends. But um, I think you have to be really careful with that because you could get in a lot of trouble with excess inventory or the things that come along with spending too much money on something that nobody wants anymore. But we'll get a big hit. Like, we had fun with the spinner craze um, or the fidgety craze in the last couple months. But I am pretty conservative when it comes to stuff like that because I don't want to get stuck with a bunch of inventory at the end that suddenly kids think is, you know, so last year. What was like your first inkling that fidget spinners were going to be a phenomenon? Fidget cubes came out before fidget spinners, and it was a, literally a cube, and every side had something different—a button, or like a light switch type button, or a, a, a thing you could roll with your thumb. So I was at a trade show in um, early January, and, and I had heard of the fidget cube, but um, they hadn't really been on the market too for too long. And somebody gave me one to hold and to take through the show. And I literally played with it through the whole show, like in my hand, like fidgeting with it while I was looking for product. And I thought like, okay, I can see this being big. Um, so we brought in the fidget cubes. They did. We put them on social media. Um, and that's kind of a gauge for me uh, nowadays to see how well something might do. And we got a huge reaction. Is that just likes and people commenting and asking more? or yep, coming in and mentioning, like, oh, I saw you at the Fidget Cube, phone calls, you know, so kind of like the, the buzz that it creates. Uh, we sold out of our first round pretty quickly, and then we got a second round. Then came the Fidget Spinner. Um, but again, you may have noticed how quickly that came and went. Once school got out, it was sort of like a, eh, nobody was talking about it anymore. And so to... To me, the whole trick is of sensing that and starting to back down. And, and you may lose some, some sales in the transition period, but I'd rather lose a couple of those sales than get stuck with cases of merchandise that, I, that nobody cares about anymore. Nobody's talked about fidget spinners in the store in months. So, yeah, yeah. So is the key when you reorder to try to ballpark it where you're not ordering too many? Like you'd rather put yeah. in an, a second order or something than 
put in one huge order. Exactly. Exactly. And um, listening. Are people talking about them as much? What is the reaction? Is it like more of an eye roll when they're talking about them or is it more of a, the excitement of it? And then and then watching who else carries them. I mean, there was like a bin of them at a mass market office supply store. So to me, it's like, and done. And um, when you go to the big trade shows, what do you look for? Because now you have a super trained eye. You've been doing this for so long. So yeah. have you developed some instincts around what you think has some good potential and what stuff is going to be a flop? I, f- I feel like I have. I mean, I am definitely not, haven't honed it 100%, but um, there are people who go with, like, a plan and, a, you know, a game plan and a notebook and all this stuff, and I'm definitely someone who just, like, walks the aisles and looks. And if it attracts my attention, then then I stop and, and go further. And And... You know, I go by gut more than some sort of grand plan. You're you're spotting trends then a little more because your vision is wider than, you know, I have to be an aisle exit this time or whatever. To me, you can get a better sense of what's happening, and then you can spot those either style trends or um, product trends or whatever. Have there been any products in the last few years while you've been running your store where you thought it was going to do really well and it didn't? Something that really surprised you? I've definitely brought in like some dolls that I thought people would love and they kind of sat longer. And those are the lessons you learn over time as a retailer. Like, okay, my customers just aren't into this category <laughs> and I need to move on. What are you excited about for this upcoming selling season, the holidays? There's a, a roll-up piano that we put out a couple weeks ago, and people loved it. We've sold out of that, so we, we did a big order of that for the holidays. We've got a Mad Matter, a really interesting dough that never dries out. Again, some kind of grown-up fun things like a karaoke mic that amplifies your voice, and you can Bluetooth in music. And This is our first selling season with Lego, so our first Christmas season, I should say, with Lego. So that we're excited about, having Lego for the holidays. You know, you can buy Lego a lot of different places. So the question is, um, do I want to dedicate that space to something you can find somewhere else? But at the end of the day, it comes down to Lego is a really great toy, you know, and that's what's important to me is the quality of play you're getting, and you get a great quality of play from Lego, so... Rework is produced by Waylon Wong and me, Sean Hildner. Our theme music is Broken by Design by Clipart. Special thanks to my friend David Sachs, who wrote a book called The Revenge of Analog. If you want to read more about United Record Pressing and the Renaissance in vinyl, his book is out in paperback. Thanks also to Dee Marsden at the American Specialty Toy Retailing Association. Next time on Rework, we're answering your questions in our first mailbag show. If you'd like a question answered on the show, give us a call and leave a message at 
I'm free.